Well, we're continuing our study through the book of Mark. And last week we talked about how Jesus was in the process of breaking down the traditions that were set in place by the leaders in that time, the Pharisees. And the traditions that were set down actually kept people from God. They did not draw them closer to God. They put a whole bunch of rules up that people had to follow in order to be right with God. But aren't you glad that's not the way it is today? If we had to keep a set of rules, well, we, we can't. The Bible says that the Old Testament law was put in place so that you can see where you, where you missed the mark. When you, hear, when you see a red light, what's your instant reaction if you're close? You want to go through the light. You want to beat the light. If you see a speed limit sign that says 55, what do you want to do? Do 70. Why? Because you see the sign and you instantly want to do something wrong. You see something that says wet paint, what are you going to do? Touch it to see if it's really wet. Well, the law is exactly the same thing. God says these are all things are in place so you understand that you can't keep them. Because as soon as they saw the law, they instantly wanted to break it. So the question we have is, do we have any traditions today that are man-made and keep people from God? What in your life is a tradition that you have that may keep people from understanding who God is? That's just a question you can ask yourself, or as we ask as a church. Now, the last thing we saw at the end of that chapter was the Pharisees teaming up with Herodians to kill Jesus. Two unlikely people, they don't like each other, but they're going to come, come together to try and kill Jesus. So now we come to Mark chapter 3, verse 7. After all that happened, it says this, Jesus and his disciples went out to the lake, followed by a huge crowd from all over Galilee and Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and from east of the Jordan River, and even from as far away as Tyre and Sidon. Because Jesus knew that they were out to kill him, and the time had not yet come for him to reveal who he was, because there was a timeline that Jesus was working on. It was, that's why he told the people to be quiet. I'm not ready to reveal who I am yet. I have more things to do before that revelation comes out. And so he knew that if they came to do it, that revelation would be known, and he's not ready for that. So he left them, and the time for confrontation was going to come a little bit later. Also, Jesus needed time to be alone. How many know that Jesus was fully man, fully God? He operated as a fleshly guy just like we do. He had all the limitations that a human being has. He grew tired. He grew hungry. All those limitations, even though he was still God. And so all these things were going on. I'm pretty sure that Jesus needed to be alone. How many of you, when you have little kids, want to be alone? And you can never go anywhere to be alone. And don't you just want, just give me five minutes. Just five minutes. And you go in the bathroom. And they come in with you. Jesus needed time alone from all the crowds. He needed time to rest. But no matter how much he wanted to be alone, he couldn't keep the people away from him. Everyone wanted something from Jesus. But they weren't concerned about his spiritual truth. They were wor more worried about what physical blessings that Jesus could offer. They wanted healings. They didn't want the gospel. They wanted what the gospel presented. They wanted miracles. And it's kind of not too different from today. Everyone wants God to bless them and make their lives better. But very few actually want Jesus in their life and what Jesus came to do. What did Jesus come to do? What was his main goal? We've mentioned this before. 
It wasn't healings, although that was a part of it. It wasn't blessings, although that's a part of it. His purpose, his mission, as he said, was to offer salvation for the forgiveness of sins and to give us eternal life. Now, the term, the term we use for eternal life, we know what that means. We know that means heaven. But how many know that everyone has eternal life? It's just where you choose to spend it. And we see that kind of same thing every day. Whenever tragedy strikes, what happens? Churches are filled. As soon as the tragedy's over, churches are empty. Because they want the blessings of God, but they don't want Jesus himself. Now, the, all these cities that were coming, coming to see Jesus were all from all four corners. They were from north, south, east, and west. In relation to where they are, they were coming in from all directions. Because they heard about Jesus, they want the miracles, and they, they want what Jesus had, not who Jesus is. Verse 8 says, the news about his miracles had spread far and wide, and vast numbers of peoples came to see him for themselves. And again, they came for the miracles, not for the teaching and the offer of salvation. They'll, they'll endure the teaching because they want the miracle. They don't really care about the teaching. They want God to touch their life. Now, Jesus did not want a crowd. He didn't, want, he didn't like the crowds being around him. That's why he ministered one-on-one -on -one a lot of times. Because he told the crowds, again, not to say anything. Because what would happen is the crowds who weren't interested in the message, they weren't interested in what Jesus said. They were interested in what Jesus did. And the crowds at that moment, especially since this book was written to the Roman Christians, the crowds would have made the Roman government nervous. Okay, this guy's gathering a group of people with him. He's going to start a revolution. He's going to start an overthrow of the government, which is kind of what the Jews thought he was going to do. And so the crowds would give the people a wrong interpretation of what God wanted to do. Look at Asbury. What's God, God doing there and God doing in different places? If you look at some of the media around it, they're not really sure what God's going to do. They're not sure what to make of it. I've heard some negative press about that. So they were there for the miracles, not there for the teaching. Verse 9 says, Jesus instructed his disciples to bring about a boat and have it ready in case he was crowded off the beach. So the crowds were pressing in and Jesus wanted to keep himself from being crushed by the crowds and probably to offer a way of escape if they got too unruly. Because again, they weren't there for the teaching, they were there for the blessings. You don't give me the blessings, I'm going to get upset. So he kept himself on a boat. If he had to, he can just set sail and go out in the water away from the crowds. Verse 10 says, there had been many healings that day. As a result, many sick people were crowding around him, trying to touch them. But notice what happens. Even though Jesus knew the people weren't interested in his teachings, he still cared enough to heal them. He wanted to bless them. The Bible says the goodness of God brings people to repentance. There's a lot of things that God blesses us with that we don't acknowledge as God's blessing upon us. The Bible says that every good and perfect gift you have comes from God. You're able to get up and go to work, blessing from God. You live in a house with a roof, blessing from God. You have a car to drive, blessing from God. You're able, you have food to eat, blessing from God. I was listening to a uh, radio program the other day. It's called Voice of the Martyrs. You ever hear that? Voice of the Martyrs radio station. It's talking about how horrible the persecution is of Christians, especially in the Muslim area. 
And then not just there, but everywhere. You go to China, you go to Soviet Union, or Russia now, and North Korea. Persecution of Christians is hard. In this country, we have been blessed more than we deserve to be blessed. And yet we still don't acknowledge that God's the one who's doing it. Even though the crowds would present a problem for Jesus and for the Romans, he still cared enough to touch them and heal them. You know, he could have just left. He could have sailed away and disappeared from the view. But he didn't. As we said earlier in the series, he had compassion on people. What's the one talking point you're getting from Asbury and all the other revolution, all the other revivals? The love of Jesus. That's the talking point that most people have. How Jesus cares for people. As a parent, we care, we love our kids. We want to give them the best of everything. But we don't allow them to have everything they want because we know what's best. God knows what's best for us and he wants to pour that knowledge upon us so that we're able to best serve him and best have a, a life that honors him and is blessing to us. Verse 11 goes on and says, whenever those who were possessed by evil spirits caught sight of him, they would fall down in front of him, shrieking, you are the son of God. Once again, we have a difference between physical healings and demonic possession. And Jesus now encounters the demonic again. And even though the crowds didn't recognize him as the Messiah, guess who did? The demons. They recognized who Jesus was. The demons and demonic forces have better theology than a lot of us. James 2.19 says, Do you still think it's enough just to believe that there's one God? Well, even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. The demons know their Bible. It's, not, it's one thing to know your Bible here. It's another to apply what you know here. When Jesus was tempted in the garden, how did Satan try to trap him? With Scripture. Twisted, but Scripture. The devil knows his Bible. Our knowledge of the Bible is important, but that knowledge in and of itself does not save you. Our knowledge of the Bible should lead us to repentance and faith, not to a puffed up ego of how much we know. It's easy to want to gather a bunch of knowledge. We had a game night here the other night. How many were here for the game night? We had a good time. But we played this one game. It was kind of like a trivial type of game. And one of the things that my wife has said, and I'm true, and I think where's Kurt, his wife says the same thing. We have heads full of useless information, which is perfect for trivial pursuit, right? You have always these knowledge, these little tidbits of knowledge in your head that you never use except in a trivial pursuit game. Well, it's easy to have a whole lot of Bible knowledge in your head, but never let it apply to your life. The demons know what God's word says, but they don't listen to it. They don't obey it. And they use it against us. There's so many misinterpretations of God's word out there. Most of God's word is pretty plain. There are some things that are quite, you know, hard to understand, but if you study, you'll know what they mean. If we stick to the easy, plain stuff, we're fine. That's what Asbury is. They're focusing on Jesus, period. Not focusing all the, on all the other things that may be important. They're focusing on the Lord. The more we know about God through the Bible, the more humble we should be. 
that God has chosen to give you that information, that knowledge. When Peter saw Jesus do a miracle of catching the huge number of fish, what was, G what was his reaction? Luke 5 says, when Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, oh Lord, please leave me. I'm too much of a sinner to be around you. When you realize how much God is blessing you and how much God is working in your life, it should humble us. Man, the God of the universe is, actually cares about me. One of the first verses I memorized was Romans 5.8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Think, think about that for a moment. While we hated God, wanted nothing to do with God, still he died for me. Me. When Peter recognized who Jesus was, he humbled himself. But what happened when Peter got a little bit proud? Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And Peter says, hey, you are Christ, the son of the living God. Awesome. But then Peter got kind of puffed up with his knowledge, and what did he say? And Jesus says, well, you know, I'm going to be crucified in a couple of days. And Peter said, no, no, don't be doing that. And what did Jesus say? Get thee behind me, Satan. When we get puffed up in our knowledge of God's word, the enemy will use that to bring us down. We should humble ourselves. If we know anything about God's word, we should be humble that God was able to teach us that. And we should be humble enough to want more. As you get older, what's the saying that says, the more you, the more you know, the more you know you don't know. You get older, the more you think you know, you find out the more you don't know. And the more you know God's word, the more you're gonna find out there's a whole bunch of stuff we don't know. It needs us to study it, so we're sure. So the demons recognized who Jesus was in verse 11. They shrieked and says, you are the son of, the God, son of God. The demons knew his true identity. Notice what they did not call him. They did not call him a prophet. They did not call him a teacher. They did not call him a rabbi. They called him who exactly he was, the son of God. What's the world think of Jesus today? Good prophet, good teacher, rabbi, Good model, good example. Well, there's a, a saying that says, Jesus w was one of three things. He was either a liar, a lunatic, or he was who he said he was. If he's lying about all he said because he claimed himself to be the Messiah, if he's lying, then everybody is, that's following him is following a lie. But we know it's not because everything that he has said has been backed up. Maybe he believed that he was a son of God, but he wasn't, and he was a lunatic. Well, he wasn't a lunatic. You wouldn't have all the disciples martyring, allowing themselves to be martyred for something they knew to be a lie. So then he is who he said he was. And verse 12 says, But Jesus strictly warned them not to say who he was. The time for Jesus to reveal to the world who he was had not yet come. Now, we're all waiting for the rapture, right? Waiting for Christ to return. Well, that hasn't happened yet. So, God's timing is God's timing. When it happens, it's going to happen. We could be today, could be tomorrow, could be 100 years from now. But we know that God's timing is perfect. And for Jesus, his time to reveal who he was to the crowds had not yet come. But it's going to come. Jesus did not want the demons sharing that information with anyone else. So he commanded them to be quiet. 
So now it's, Jesus is done with the crowds are gone. It doesn't say whether they stopped coming or whether they, or he just left while they were waiting. Verse 13 says, Afterwards, Jesus went up on a mountain and called the ones he wanted to go with him, and they came to him. Now Luke tells us that he had prayed before selecting the 12 disciples. In Luke 6, same account, different version, different take on it. One day soon afterwards, Jesus went up on a mountain to pray, and he prayed to God all night. At daybreak, he called together all his disciples and chose 12 of them to be his apostles. Now look, at if you, how many have been watching The Chosen? It's a good program. You notice there's a, a lot of people following Jesus in that movie. And the verse here tells us there was a lot of people following Jesus, but only 12 of them out of that crowd was chosen to be apostles. Now, it probably wasn't a huge contingent, but it was more than 12. Because he says, out of that crowd, he chose 12. So there was more than 12 there. Verse 14 says, then he selected 12 of them to be his regular companions, calling them apostles. Notice, and I've said this before, notice the circle of friends that Jesus has. You have the crowds. Then you have all the crowds that wanted nothing but miracles. Then you have the people who wanted, the crowds who wanted Jesus. And then from the crowd, you had 12. And then you had the three. And then you had John, the one. We have a large segment of people that we know. Your people you work with, your neighbors, people in the community, that's that's the huge crowd, that's the outer perimeter. And then you have the ones that you know more intimately, your extended family, your church family. And then from that group, you have a select few from that group that you're closer with. And then we share the most intimate details of our life with select church, select church family, friends, immediate family. And then you have the one. And for the married folks, it should be your spouse. That's how the circle should be. If you're single, it's the Lord. He's a father to the he's a father to the fatherless and a bride to the widow, a husband to the widow. Jesus calls these twelve people to pre- to prepare them for when he's gone. Now they would be with him basically twenty four seven until his time of departure had come, his crucifixion, and he taught them by personal example, preparing to send them out to preach and ultimately giving them authority to heal and cast out demons. This is another, again, I'm going to reference the chosen. I mentioned this on Wednesday night. When you read the text, you basically see, oh, he called 12 and they sent him out. You don't see any personal emotion involved in that, which I'm sure there were. In the movie or in the, in the TV version of Chosen, he, you see them gathered around the table, him basically telling them what it's going to cost them to go out. They're going to be called, they're going to be arrested. They're going to be called before judges and, and lawyers and God's going to give them the words to say and at some point they're going to be martyred. He basically tells them that at the table. Can you imagine what these 12 guys are feeling at this time? Jesus leaves the room and they start talking to each other in the, in the TV show. And they're rightfully worried. Some of them are afraid. I'm going to die? All the emotion that comes into this, all we have is in the text is God, Jesus called 12. Those are the ones who are going to be with him 
24-7. And I'm sure during that time they had all kinds of emotions going on. Is this right? Am I doing it right? Am I, should I be not be here? Why am I part of this? What's it going to cost me? And over time, God, and it doesn't say in the Bible, again, he said he sent them out and they come back with the testimony that they heal people. Another great thing about this is you get to see, again, a fictionalized account of what might have happened. You see the, the guys going out healing, healing people in the, in the show and the shock and surprise on their, on their faces when they're actually seeing miracles happen because they're praying for someone. It's amazing what God wants to do through us. These guys were taught by Jesus' personal example. We're taught from God's word today. But we still should have the same excitement when we see things happening in God's kingdom. Verses 14 and 15 says, He sent them out to preach and gave them authority to cast out demons. Once they've been sufficiently trained they would then train others to carry on the gospel. As a church, our mission, in addition to bringing people to Jesus, is to teach them and train them to carry on the message after we're gone. When you have children, when they're born, do they know, well, some know everything, but for the most part, do they know everything? No, you teach them as they grow, and hopefully by the time they're 18 or 20 or 25, they have a lot more knowledge. Our job as parents is to teach them and prepare them for the world. Our job as Christians is to teach them God's word so that they're ready for the world. That's why it's so exciting to see all the young people here. Because we want God's mission to go on. Bible says that Jesus is long-suffering. He doesn't want anyone to perish, all to come to repentance. Well, the only way they're going to do that is if we do our job. So Jesus calls these 12, quote, apostles. Now, Jesus had many disciples, but only 12 apostles. Verse 16 goes on and says, these are the names of the 12 he chose. Simon, he renamed Peter, James, and John, the sons of Zebedee, but Jesus nicknamed them sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. So you have the most educated, well-rounded people of the community. You think? You got a motley crew of four fishermen, one hated tax collector, another a member of a violent, a violent and radical gang, dedicated to overthrowing Rome by murder. And the other six, we don't know really a whole lot about. But we do know this. They were all regular folks. Not a preacher among them, not a teacher among them, not an expert among them. And God used this strange group to bring his church and preach the gospel to the world. I wrote down, never think that your lack of refinement knowledge or occupation can keep you from being used by God. These guys were fishermen and they probably smelled like fish. Yet a zealot, always quick with a knife, ready to just go out and start fighting Romans if they needed to. Yet a tax collector that no one liked, especially the Jews, 
God uses us if we're ready. He can and does use the least likely among us. 1 Corinthians 1.26 says, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God deliberately chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose those who are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important so that no one can ever boast in the presence of God. Aren't you glad for that? That God picked you in spite of you. And the most, the, I've said this a thousand times and it's true, it's true, I think about it all the time. God chose you and he knew every time you were gonna mess up after he chose you. And the Bible says he chose you. He looked down and says, yeah, him. Jesus says in John 15, I believe, that you didn't choose me, I chose you. I remember when I was a kid, we, I, was never, I was never an athletic kid. So whenever we'd have pickup games, football, whatever, I was one of the last guys they picked. And usually it was like, we don't want Bender, you can take him. No, we don't want him, you have him. Jesus looked down and he picked you first on the team. If, you're, if you were to read the Gospels, you see that this is where Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. Now, Mark's Gospel doesn't record that because his readers were more interested in what he did than what he taught. Again, talking to the Roman crowd here. And verse 20 says, when Jesus returned to the house where he was staying, the crowds began to gather again, and soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. Once again, Jesus can't get any rest. Because everybody wants something from Jesus. The crowds were so many that it took all day and they didn't get to eat. He was not living a normal, simple life. And what was happening was his family, his mom and his brothers and sisters were worried about him. And they traveled all the way to see where he was to take care of him. Now remember, Jesus couldn't rest, he couldn't eat, he couldn't sleep. And so his family is seeing the toll it's taking on him. Just like he's a normal guy, he doesn't have supernatural power. He does, operating by the Holy Spirit. But his physical body was still subject to whatever we're subject to. He's tired, hungry, and thirsty. And so his, he's wearing out, he's getting really tired. His family wants to take care of him, take him away, and just give him some rest. And verse 21 says, when his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him home with them. He's out of his mind, they said. Now that wasn't a... That wasn't a, a a dig on Jesus. That was basically saying, you guys are working him so hard that he's not able to think right. He's so tired and so hungry, he's not, he's not thinking right. He needs rest. They thought he was mentally worn out. Thus the phrase, out of his mind. You come to the end of a long day and you're just mentally exhausted. I think a lot of times mental exercise wears you out just as much as physical exercise does. And by the end of the day, you're just like, I'm so tired. That's exactly what they thought was going on with Jesus. They didn't think he was crazy. He, they thought he was just tired to the point of not taking care of himself. Somebody you know that works 100 hours a week, you tell them, you're crazy for working that much. That's what the family was saying. Now, they did not understand Jesus or his mission, 
but they did care for him because his brothers did not believe in who he was until after he died. People will always misunderstand us and how we live and what we believe. Especially sometimes in your own family. Jesus didn't, you know, diss his family. He knew that they came to take care of him. But if he went with them, that would give credence to the crowd that he was crazy. If he said, okay, you're right, I'm going to go with you, then the whole crowd would have said, yep, he's right, they're right, he's crazy. And his family was right, coming to take care of him. He also wasn't saying that we abandon our families when we get saved, but we put God's will above everything. Verse 22 goes on and says, But the teachers of religious law who had arrived from Jerusalem said, He's possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. That's where he gets the power to cast out demons. Now, Mark's gospel admits the, the reason behind this particular statement. Matthew tells us why they said this. Matthew 12, 22 says, Then a demon-possessed man who was both blind and unable to talk was brought to Jesus. He healed the man so he could both speak and see. The crowd was amazed. Could it be that Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah? They wondered out loud. But when the Pharisees heard about the miracle, they said, no wonder he can cast out demons. He gets his power from Satan, the prince of demons. Even just thinking that on, fa on its face value, that's a ridiculous statement. They're basically saying that Jesus and the devil are in cahoots with each other. And they're working together. If that's true, why would Jesus or the devil cast out a devil from somebody? They were saying that Jesus isn't healing people and delivering people because God gave him the power, but because the devil gave him his power. That's crazy. And Jesus even explains that. And how many times do we see that today? When God does something miraculous, there's always people trying to discount the miraculous and explain it away. Coincidence, happening, time, whatever. When Lauren was nine months old, we took her to the neurologist and put things, she had cerebral palsy when she was born, they put these, all these little things in her head. And they tested her in Children's Hospital in Pittsburgh and the doctor says, yep, she has cerebral palsy. So we her, sign her up for an Easter Seals program and during the time we pray for her and God heals her, we don't know that yet, but God heals her. And the Easter Seals program tells us, you know what? There's nothing wrong with her. You need to get her checked out again. So we go back to the same doctor, same hospital, same test, and guy says, well, it's gone. And I said, hold up. I don't know much about this, but I know you don't grow out of cerebral palsy. He says, well, I can tell you that it was there, it's, now it's not. No credit to God that a miracle was done. But a miracle was done. <laughs> Matthew 3.23 says, Jesus called them over and said to them by way of illustration, how can Satan cast out Satan? A kingdom at war with itself will collapse. A home divided against itself is doomed. And if Satan is fighting against himself, how can he stand? He will never survive. And that just seems like common sense. You don't fight against yourself. The devil that this man had described in Matthew, he had him in his grasp. This guy was possessed by a demon, couldn't see, couldn't talk. This guy was gripped by the devil. Jesus released him. Why would the devil let himself go? 
He'd be defeating himself. He'd be letting this guy go to worship Jesus. Why would he do that? If, they kept, if the devil kept doing that, there'd be no one left to possess. No more sin to commit. And the devil can't survive on his own power. And if that happened, the earth would not survive. Jesus then tells him a parable that describes what they're thinking. Verse 27, let me illustrate this. You can't enter a strong man's house and rob him without first tying him up. Only then can his house be robbed. In this parable, the strong man is Satan. He has limited power and authority. But Jesus is saying that even though the devil's strong, Jesus is stronger. And he can come in, tie up the enemy, subdue him, and rob him of his victims, those that are possessed. The devil is powerless against Jesus. Because every time, it didn't take more than once for Jesus to say, be healed, be delivered, healed. He then goes on to warn everyone about the seriousness of what the leaders were doing. Verse 28 says, I assure you that any sin can be forgiven, including blasphemy. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. It is an eternal sin. That's what we call the unpardonable sin. We've all heard that term. So what's Jesus talking about? What is the unpardonable sin? Well, the word blasphemy literally means to come against. You come against something. You blaspheme something, you blaspheme God, you come against God. Well, the Bible says that no one comes to God unless the Spirit of God draws him, right? It means if you're thinking about God, it's because God's making you think about him, making you come to a point where you have to choose. And the, the Spirit's gonna continue to minister to you and draw you and make you think about him until it comes to a point where you no longer listen. I wrote down here, if, you've, if you're worried about having committed it, you haven't committed it. What's gonna happen is you're gonna, your mind's gonna think about things of God. And God's gonna keep making you do that, but it's gonna come a point where you're not gonna hear that anymore. The Bible says, my spirit will not always strive with men. So God's gonna continue to call you and call you and call you, and that voice is gonna get softer and softer and softer until you don't hear it. The unpardonable sin is nothing that you do. It's something that you don't do. You don't respond to when God is ministering to you. There's gonna come a time, if you've been drawn, if you've been thinking about God, there's gonna come a time, the more you ignore it, you're not gonna hear it. Verse 30 says, he told them this because they were saying that he had an evil spirit. Jesus was healing people and delivering them from demons and possession. Why would someone think that Jesus is doing this because he was evil? Well, the truth is they had become so hardened against what God was doing, they're no longer under, able to understand spiritual truth. And they thought, well, it can't be God because I know what God's supposed to be doing. So it has to be an evil spirit. They became so hardened to what the Bible actually said that they couldn't allow any room for them to be wrong. When you hear the truth, when you hear the truth so many times and you ignore it, you become hardened to it, and therefore you can't respond to it even when it's so obvious. Verse 
If you're concerned about committing the unpardonable sin, you haven't. Because that means the Holy Spirit's still speaking to you. God's still trying to draw you in. Because if you had, you would no longer feel the tug towards God and you wouldn't have that concern at all. If you're worried about it, that means you still have a chance. I said I was going to use this as an illustration, so here we go. My van has a rumbling in the front end. I think it's a bad wheel bearing. Now, I can let it go, but it's not going to get better if I let it go. And what's going to happen is that rumbling is going to get to the point where I don't hear it anymore. I'll be so, so accustomed to the rumbling, it's not going to bother me anymore. And what I could also do is turn the radio up. A lot of times when, when you feel God speaking to you, God just, you feel something about God, you start thinking about other things to take your mind off of what God's doing. So you don't hear that voice anymore. Just because I don't hear it doesn't mean the problem went away. It just means I became so accustomed to it, I don't hear it anymore. If I let it go because I can't hear it, eventually it's going to fail. And it's going to cause a lot more damage than if I took care of it right now. If you're feeling the tug of the Holy Spirit, in other words, you're thinking about God things. Not anything specific. You're thinking about what, that God's talking to you. Not audibly, but you have a, a sense in your spirit that God wants to do something in your life. If you're feeling that and you ignore it, eventually that tug is going to go away. And at some point, your ability to respond will also be gone because you won't feel that anymore. If I ignore that wheel bearing, I no longer hear it. Doesn't mean it's gone. It just means I'm not going to respond to it because I don't hear it anymore. I believe that tug can be for salvation, but it can also be for something in your life that God wants to address. Maybe you know God's dealing with you on something right now and you keep ignoring it, you'll fix it later. I'll fix that bearing later. <laughs> the problem is you won't. And eventually God will let that wheel bearing blow up in your face. I was listening to uh, David Jeremiah the other day. I mean, like David Jeremiah. He had did a sermon called The Most Dangerous Word, word in the Bible. The most dangerous word in the Bible is tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow I'll let God work on me tomorrow I'll fix that wheel bearing tomorrow I'll respond to the Holy Spirit tomorrow the problem is tomorrow never comes the Bible doesn't say tomorrow is a day of salvation the Bible says today is a day of salvation nobody here is guaranteed of tomorrow I mean, every day in the news, we hear about someone getting shot somewhere, having a car accident somewhere, the train derailment in Ohio. You know, you're not guaranteed tomorrow. So you make your plans today. And if God gives you another 70 years, praise God. But you know you're ready. And we've seen revival breaking out in Asbury 
And you know how that happened? One kid stood up and basically confessed his sins to the crowd. And he said he, repenting, he repented of those. Repent just means simply turn around, don't do it anymore. He told us that God had been dealing with him about something and he finally let God do it. He responded to what God was prompting him to do, the tug of the Spirit. And we've been praying for revival, but we need to do the same thing here if we want that to happen. It doesn't necessarily mean we come up and openly confess sin, but it might mean individual repentance. Allowing God to deal with you on things you know he wants you to address. You know, revival doesn't happen in a crowd first. It happens in individuals first. Then it spreads to the crowd. I get revived. And it gets revived. And that crowd gets revived. That person gets revived. And then revival breaks out. That only happens when God addresses things in my life that he wants me to change. He wants me to correct. And we all know what those are. We all have that still small voice in our head saying, you need to change this, you need to change this, you need to change this. Tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. Once we listen to the Holy Spirit in our lives and deal with that issue, whatever it might be, and it may not even be a sinful issue, it may just be something that God wants to see. How serious are you? Do you really want revival? Here, let me take that from you. Are you that serious? And once we listen to that and let God do it, I believe God's going to pour his Holy Spirit out upon this place. And that means revival. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back. I'm going to close with one verse. The simplicity of the gospel basically tells us that we love Jesus. We don't love him for what he does. We love him for who he is. He's the God of the universe. And the Bible says, who is man that thou art mindful of him? Just put your name in there. Who is Jeff that God cares about Jeff? Out of 8 billion people in the world and all who have ever lived, who am I that God cares about me? Just insert your name in that. Who are you that God cares about you? And he, he addresses it that he does. Second Chronicles 7.14 Then if the world, no, it says, then if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from our wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins and heal their land. Our world's in a mess. It's in a mess. God doesn't tell the world to change. <laughs> God tells the church, step up. The movie, Jesus Revolution, came out yesterday or Friday. God did a miraculous thing, 1969, 1970. And if you're alive then, you know the, the havoc was going on in the world at that time. No different than today. Different problems, but the same disjointed country. And in the middle of that, God dropped his Holy Spirit upon this place in California. Now God's doing it in smaller pockets right now. I don't want to miss it. I, I want to be there when God does decides to do whatever he wants to do. I'm going to ask the team to sing that last song we sang, I Love You, Lord. And would you stand as they close with this song?
I want this song to be your prayer. And I'm going to pray after they're done. kid my dad did a lot of things for my brother and I and as kids we didn't really appreciate all that he did until we got older then we realized all the things that he put into stuff he did for us kids and you wish you can go back and, and tell him that you appreciate him at that particular point although we did get to tell him that later on in life There's a lot of things God our Father does for us that we may not appreciate right now. We don't want to get to the end of our life and think, you know, I should have really appreciated what God did for me way back when. Well, we're not there yet. And this is the perfect opportunity to really appreciate all that God has done for, your, for you and for your life. I mentioned earlier about having a relationship with Christ. Just as a human father wants to have a relationship with their earthly children, God our Father wants to have that relationship with you. There's a difference between having a dad who's not with you and having a dad who's with you. God wants to be with you. He doesn't want you to know about him. He wants you to know him. Everything that Jesus has done 
has been for us. And the Bible calls salvation a gift. Now, if I have a gift up here and it's wrapped up, you can say, yep, I believe that's my gift. I, I'm going to take it. I want it. But if you leave without it, then that gift does you no good. It's still sitting here waiting for you to take. Jesus offers salvation to everyone, a free gift, to have a relationship with their Heavenly Father. But you have to take the gift. The Bible says, I stand at the door of your heart and I knock. And if you open the door, I'll come in and have that relationship with you. If you're here this morning, I know, I know that God is knocking on your heart. If you don't have a relationship with Christ, this is the day. This is the day. You say, Dad, thank you. Thank you for blessing me. Help me to know you better. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand because I'm going to pray with you. Or maybe you're here and you, you already have that relationship with your dad, your heavenly father. But God wants to take it to the next level. Just like our 10-year-old wants to go to be 11 and to be in 8th grade. God wants to take us to the next grade. And you know there's things in your life that you need to, you need to take care of. Things in your life that maybe you think are more important than your relationship with God. Not that God's not important, but there's other things. And just like Abraham and Isaac where God says, offer up your son, your only son. Let's see how serious you are. And just before Abraham offered him up, God says, okay, I see. There may be things in your life that are, are valuable, important. But God says, am I more important than those? Are you willing to give up something to make this relationship better. And whenever God asks you to give up, he always gives back more. So if God's dealing with you on something that you know you want to you get to the next level, that's what your heart's desire. But there's still a small voice in the back of your head keeps telling you, you need to do this. And this could be anything. But you know what this is. If you're willing to give that up, or maybe add it on, maybe there's something you're not doing you should be doing. I want you to raise your hand, just between you and God. Lord, we thank you for your presence this morning. We thank you that you're a God who loves us more than we can really imagine. we're a parent we kind of understand a little bit of the love we have for our kids but Father that pales in comparison to the love you have for us allow us to leave and walk in the knowledge of that love you have for me and for each one of us
allow our lives to be transformed by what we know to be true in your word. And we don't do anything to earn your favor. There's nothing we can do to make you love us any more, and there's nothing we can do to make you love us any less. We are accepted, as your word says, we're accepted in the beloved because of what Jesus already did. When you're born into a family, the child does nothing other than be born. And the family, the mom and dad, love the baby, even though the baby doesn't do anything to deserve that love. So Father, you love us, and most times we don't do anything to deserve that love, but you love us anyways. So I just pray that that knowledge permeates our spirit and our heart that later on this week, maybe today, tomorrow, Tuesday, that we can sense the love of God, the, the presence of God, and maybe even feel that voice in the back of our head telling us, I love you. I'm proud of you. Bless each person here this morning, Lord. Allow them to experience your love and allow the love that we have for you to be expressed in how we live our life for you. We don't, we don't earn brownie points. We just really want to show you that we love you. And the only way we can do that is by living how you want us to live. So Father, be with us every single day and allow us to see great and tremendous things happening in our life as a result of our basically letting you do what you're going to do. We love you, Lord. And we commit ourselves to that end. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. Let me know what God is doing because I know he's working in your life. We want to testify to that.